It was one year ago today in a solemn assembly that we had the privilege of raising our hands to sustain the general authorities of the Church, much as we have done this morning. It was on that April morning that I heard my name read as one of those presented for your sustaining vote as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. It became my obligation to stand with those living men who have been called as special witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the earth. You must have wondered, as I did, why this call should come to me. It seemed accidental at times that I was preserved in worthiness, and yet there was always a lingering, whispering, quiet feeling about being prepared, about being guided. It has been our privilege this morning to raise our hands to sustain the President of the Church. I count that as a great blessing and as a special obligation, for I have a witness about him. Some weeks before that meeting of last April, I left the office one Friday afternoon thinking of the weekend conference assignment. I waited for the elevator to come down from the fifth floor. As the elevator doors quietly opened, there stood President Joseph Fielding Smith. There was a moment of surprise in seeing him because his office is on a lower floor. But as I saw him framed in that doorway, there fell upon me a powerful witness. There stands the prophet of God. That sweet voice of the Spirit, something akin to light that has something to do with pure intelligence, affirmed to me that this was the prophet of God. I need not try to define that experience to Latter-day Saints. That kind of witness is characteristic of this Church. It is not something reserved to those in high office. It is a witness not only available but vital to every member of the Church. As it is with the President, so it is with his counselors. North of us in the Wasatch Range stand three peaks. The poet would describe them as mighty pyramids of stone. The center one, the tallest of the three, the map would tell you is Willard Peak. But the pioneers called them the Presidency. If you should go to Willard, look eastward from that little community and up, way up, there stands the Presidency. Thank God for the Presidency. Like those peaks, they stand with nothing above them but the heavens. They need our sustaining vote, and they have received it this morning. They need it, for it is sometimes lonely in those lofty callings of leadership, for their calling is not to please man, but to please the Lord. God bless these three great and good men who preside as the First Presidency of the Church. 
Occasionally during this past year, I have been asked a question. Usually it comes as a curious, sometimes almost as an idle question, about the qualification of one to stand as a special witness of Christ. The question they ask is, have you seen him? That is a question that I have never asked of another. I have not asked that question of my brethren in the quorum, thinking that it would be so sacred and so personal that one would have to have a special inspiration, even a special authorization, even to ask it. You know, there are some things that are just too sacred to discuss. We know that as it relates to our temples. In our temples, sacred ordinances are performed, sacred experiences are enjoyed, and yet we do not discuss them because of the nature of them outside of those sacred walls. It is not that they are secret, but they are sacred. Things not to be discussed, but to be harbored and to be protected and to be regarded with the deepest of reverence. I have come to know in this past year what Alma meant when he said, It is given unto many to know the mysteries of God. Nevertheless, they are laid under a strict command that they shall not impart. Only according to that portion of his word which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which they give unto him. Therefore, he that will harden his heart, the same receiveth a lesser portion of the word. And he that will not harden his heart, to him is given a greater portion of the word, until it is given unto him to know the mysteries of God until he know them in full. There are those who hear testimonies borne in the Church by those in high station and members in the wards and the branches, all using the same words, I know that God lives, I know that Jesus is the Christ, and come to question, why cannot it be said in plainer words? Why can't they be more explicit and more descriptive? Cannot the apostles say more? How like that sacred experience in the temple becomes our personal testimony. It is sacred, and when we are wont to put it into words, we say it in the same way, all using the same words. The apostles declaring in the same phrases with the little primary and Sunday school children, I know that God lives. I know that Jesus is the Christ. We would do well not to disregard the testimonies of the prophets nor of the little children, for he imparteth his word by angels unto men, yea, not only men, but women also. Now this is not all. Little children do have words given unto them many times, which confound the wise and the learned. 
Some seek for the witness to be given in some dramatic and some different way. The bearing of testimony is something akin to a declaration of love. The romantics and the poets and couples in love have, from the very beginning of time, sought ways, more impressive ways, to say it or to sing it or to write it. They have used up all of the adjectives and all of the superlatives and all manner of poetic expression, and when all is said and done, the declaration which is the most powerful is the simple three-word variety. To one who is honestly seeking, the testimony born in these simple phrases is enough, for it is the Spirit that beareth record not the words. There is a power of communication as real and tangible as electricity. Man has devised the means to send images of sight and sound through the air to be caught on an antenna and reproduced, to be heard, and to be seen. This other communication is something like that, save it be a million times more powerful, and the witness that it brings is always pure truth. There is a process by which pure intelligence can flow, by which we can come to know of surety, nothing doubting. I said that there was a question that could not be taken lightly, nor answered at all without the promptings of the Spirit. I have not asked that question of others but I have heard them answer it, but not when they were asked. They have answered it under the promptings of the Spirit on sacred occasions when the Spirit beareth record. I have heard one of my brethren declare, I know from experiences too sacred to relate that Jesus is the Christ. I have heard another testify, I know that God lives, I know that the Lord lives, and more than that, I know the Lord. It was not their words that held the meaning or the power, it was the Spirit, not what I heard, but what I felt. For when a man speaketh with the power of the Holy Ghost, The power of the Holy Ghost carrieth it into the hearts of the children of men. I speak of this subject in humility, with the constant feeling that I am the least in every way of those who are called to this holy office. I have come to know that that witness, the witness, does not come by seeking after signs. It comes through fasting and through prayer. It comes through obedience and testing. It comes through sustaining the servants of the Lord and following them. Carl G. Mazur was taking a group of missionaries across the Alps. As they reached a summit, he stopped and gesturing back to some poles set in the snow to mark the way across the glacier, and he said, Brethren, there stands the priesthood. They are just common sticks like the rest of us. 
But the position they hold make them what they are to us. If we step aside from the trail they mark, we are lost. The witness depends upon sustaining his servants, as we have done here in sign and as we should do in action. Now I wonder with you why one such as I should be called to the Holy Apostleship. There are so many qualifications that I lack. There is so much in my efforts to serve that is wanting. As I have pondered on it, I have come to only one single thing, one qualification in which there may be cause, and that is that I have that witness. I declare to you that I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that he lived. He was born in the meridian of time. He taught his gospel, was tried, was crucified. He rose on the third day. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. He has a body of flesh and bone. Of this I bear testimony. Of him I am a witness. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As I thank Brother Hinckley this morning for his great sermon Sunday, I mentioned a recollection of two men, one of whom had just given a great talk. The other thanked him and commended him and said, That was a great sermon. I wish I had given it. The other said, You will. <laughs> I suspect many of us will be giving some of the great sermons we have heard at this conference. My theme this morning is practicing what we preach. I suppose everyone understands what that means. Last Sunday in Logan, I heard a choice teacher report her conversation with a little girl in a class. She had asked the little girl, what does it mean to practice what you preach? Oh, said the youngster, that means writing your talk and saying it over and over again before you give it in church. I'd like to say a few words this morning about uh, the more conventional interpretation of practicing what we preach. I visited the hospital the other evening to see my desperately ill sister and found her and her family, they surrounding her bed, holding their family home evening, led by her fourth missionary son just returned from foreign fields. I joined them and then went home rejoicing and thanking God and met my own family who were waiting and prayed that we might do a better job of practicing what we preach. I visited her this morning and talked with her to the Lord and in the spirit of that sobering experience offer my testimony this morning. What do we believe that we should be practicing or or practicing more effectively, many of us? What is our duty? What are we commanded? What do we preach? 
Well, one important thing that we preach is that parents are to love and teach their children and set an honorable example before them. And the children are to honor and obey their parents. Parents are to love and cleave to each other. And children, as Benjamin said, are to love one another and serve one another. We're taught to meet together in a weekly family home evening, to pray together as families, to give an account together of the tithes we've paid, to attend sacrament meeting and worship together as a family. We're expected to fast together and to give an amount equivalent to the cost of what we did not eat to the bishop for the care of those who have needs. As a family, we're to greet the home teachers and respond to their instructions and inquiries. Motivated by the lofty stature of the family in church belief, we should be reading and learning together, working together, having pleasant, happy occasions at our meal time supporting each other in school, church, civic involvements. We should be planning and enjoying projects together, building our customs and traditions into a continuity of generations. All of this we are taught and encouraged to do. But it isn't of duty or commandment or admonition that I wish to speak this morning, cherished and holy as those words are. I'd like instead to speak of invitation of opportunity, of privilege, of love, of gratefully taking time while there is time to enjoy the blessing of our family and home. How much joy are we missing that we could be having and are meant to have? Joy that we could experience only in our own home and no other place, only with our own family and with no other group. It's instructive to look at the music we sing. Our little ones sing, I am a child of God, and he has sent me here, has given me an earthly home with parents, kind and dear. Our wonderful young people sing as they have sung in testimony this morning, and they sing other songs. We'll build on the rock they founded. And the song goes on to say, the rock of honor and virtue and faith in the living God. From our singing mothers comes the great strain, love one another. And all of us sing love at home. Our ties with God and each other are everlasting. Our homes are sanctuaries from the things and cares of this world. Our families are the heart of our eternal hopes. Our love is the tender thread that ties us to an endless, creative, increasing union. These are the things we believe and preach. Can we do more to enjoy the blessings of such concepts in our lives, in our homes, in our families? Can we do better while there is time at practicing what we preach? Matthew Arnold wrote in Empedocles on Etna, We would have inward peace, but will not look within. May we for a moment this morning, each of us, look within himself and home and family as I offer a happy example or two of what I'm talking about. About 12 years ago, I had a call early in the morning from a beloved friend who's a physician. He asked me to come to the hospital to administer with him to his infant son, just born and fighting for his life. We reached our hands into the incubator, 
and laid them on this tiny boy and prayed and then sat and waited with Larry's mother while he took a turn for the better. We were there when the pediatrician came to announce that he was going to make it. He came through that difficult ordeal with a fine mind and a strong, indomitable spirit. Only a pair of legs that are not quite as strong as they one day will be remain to remind Larry how blessed he is to be alive. Recently, this little boy's big brother returned from having served an honorable mission for the Lord abroad. A perceptive uncle, observing the reunion at the airport, wrote a letter to Larry, which I had the privilege of reading. I asked if I might have permission to quote it and have been given that permission. I'd like you to know about a Latter-day Saint boy just ordained a deacon who tries to practice what we preach. Dear Larry, the letter said, yesterday I got a lump in my throat without even swallowing a frog and I got a tear in my eye without even inhaling a hippie's breath. More than that, I got a picture tattooed on my memory that I'll never forget. It's only right that I thank you for the lump, the tears, and the picture, for a handsome boy named Larry gave me all three of them, and he didn't even know it or ask me for a receipt. It started when he stood waiting for his brother to return from serving our Heavenly Father as a missionary for two years in a far-off land. You could see that the two years had been longer for this boy than for anyone else. He was so intense, so pale, so absorbed with just watching and waiting. Then to see his face light up when he saw his brother again, it was like a flashlight in a dark room. Someone whispered that this wonderful boy had been saving his nickels, dimes, and quarters for two years to buy his big brother a basketball, a more than $30 best-there-is basketball, because he loved him. He wouldn't let anyone else contribute. It was his idea and his gift, his best way, out of money he could have spent for himself but chose not to because he loved someone else so much. Then I watched this fine boy stand without saying a word at the sight of his big brother, happy just to look way up at his face, hold on to his leg, and see him home again. I have a special love and admiration for both of those boys the giant who went far away all alone to do what was right, and the little brother who waited and planned and remembered. Larry, you're a fine boy. I'm sure that you'll be a great man, for you have a big heart and a tender conscience. Some can run faster, jump higher, walk farther, play longer, just because they had an easier time getting born into this world. That's no credit to them. But you have more than most to be thankful for because Heavenly Father sent one of his favorite sons to live in your body. And it's who lives in a house that makes all the difference. Thanks, Larry, for the lesson an old dumb uncle learned yesterday just by watching. Love, Uncle Dick. A few weeks ago, I listened to a stake president exhort his people to build strong families and to enjoy them. It was a great sermon, and the high point of it for me was his account of the family skiing trip when a four-year-old wanted to go to the top with the rest of the family and ski down. When they arrived, 
it was discovered he had to snowplow all the way down because it was just a bit too tough a run for his age and experience. The mother started to accompany her four-year-old son down the hill. But her teenage son voluntarily took over and lovingly shepherded his little brother down instead of swooping down himself as he could have done. He cheerfully sacrificed one swift run down the mountain and blessed a whole family with a sweet spirit of love and concern and appreciation. Among many who do wonderfully well at practicing what we preach, there's one other I would mention for a moment this morning. To our home periodically over the past several years has come a special kind of man as our home teacher. He's brought with him a dear son who, like Larry of the letter, had a difficult time getting born and has had some major problems to contend with. The father and son have sat many times side by side in our home, hands gently clasped or arms intertwined or a hand on a knee, communicating, always expressing without language an exchange of love. How we admire this man and his beloved son. These are some of the simple chords of melody that make a home harmonious and happy. Kindness, consideration, care, courtesy, laughter, unselfishness, prayer, thoughtfulness, doing things for each other, forgiving each other, sustaining each other, loving each other. These are notes that form a family symphony happily enjoyed and eternally remembered. If a family loses its cherished human values and deteriorates into only the form of a family, it has lost what a family is for. Whatever changes are said to have occurred in our time, there is left to the family the most important purpose of all, the satisfaction of the basic emotional and spiritual needs of its members. In any era, one has written, society is a web of which the family forms the central strand. In home, family, and love lie the resources that fulfill the life of the individual and the life of the community. Indeed, the resources that would redeem our troubled world and bring it lasting peace. Children must be safeguarded and reared. Only in the home can children be assured of the love and direction they need to live love, and only parents who genuinely love can meet those needs. But it must be more than a preached or pronounced love. It must be love that takes time, makes the effort, listens patiently, gives freely, forgives generously, provides the amenities that will grace and adorn and make beautiful the relationships of family life. But I must add today, that I do not speak by authority or from authority, but with authority. For I myself know these things to be true. I know them to be true because I have experienced them. I've lived them. I've been there. The home I grew up in had the kind of love of which I speak, though it had little else of things. I hope and pray that our happy home 
has done as well. Of course, I've said what I've said today in part for myself and our own family, for we still have the privilege and blessing of seeking to improve. I'm grateful to thank the Lord for that. I do not know a greater accolade in this life, and believe there is none, than a note from a six-year-old who writes, Guess what, Mom? I love you. Or from a teenager's gracious gift, Dad, you are my friend, and I will love you forever. Or from a dad or mom to a choice son or daughter, I love you. I'm proud of you. Does not this motivate us to want to be what we can be? Jesus said, as I have loved you, love one another. God help us, parent and child, to accept the opportunity while there is time in our homes and families to practice what we preach. I know the gospel is true, and I know the gospel includes that which he has taught us of relationship to each other in our homes and families. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. On the day of Pentecost in Old Jerusalem, the Apostle Peter declared unto the people that Jesus Christ, who had before been preached unto them, would come again. But that day would be delayed until the restitution or restoration of all things, and that this event had been promised since the world began. The organization of the Church of Christ, known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in this day and age is part of that restoration. On this day we reaffirm our conviction and testimony of that which transpired in the organization of the Church of Christ in this dispensation 141 years ago today. Upon that occasion, unto those who were assembled, the Lord referred to that which had already been accomplished in the restoration of the gospel through his servant Joseph Smith. Here are his words. And gave unto him commandments, which inspired him, and gave him power from on high by the means which were before prepared to translate the Book of Mormon, which contains a record of a fallen people and of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and to the Jews also, which was given by inspiration and is confirmed to others by the ministering of angels and is declared unto the world by them proving to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true and that God does inspire men and call them to His holy work in this age and generation, as well as in generations of old, thereby showing that He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. The Church of Christ has been restored in this the last of all dispensations, 
which is called by the Lord the dispensation of the fullness of times. When completed, it will produce a welding together of all former dispensations with their keys, principles, and intelligence down from the time of Adam and being the last, this dispensation presages the doctrines of last things in the preparation for the second coming of Christ the Lord and of the end of mortal existence of man upon the earth. The question of the nearness of the second coming of the Son of Man rests upon many in our present day. In pondering the question, I have often thought of three things. The first is observed in these words of the Lord. The day and the hour no one knoweth. No, not the angels of God in heaven, but my Father only. There are signs, however, which indicate the nearness of this great event. For instance, and secondly, living in the last dispensation, we must be aware of the fact that there will not be another. It follows that all that God has intended for the redemption and salvation of man upon the earth through the gospel plan will culminate in this dispensation. Actually, the Lord identifies this present day in particular as a time of preparation. Here is the instruction he gave by revelation in the early days of the Church, and I quote, Pray unto the Lord, call upon his holy name, and make known his wonderful works among the people. Call upon the Lord that his kingdom may go forth upon the earth, that the inhabitants thereof may receive it, and be prepared for the days to come in which the Son of Man shall come down in heaven, clothed in the brightness of his glory, to meet the kingdom of God which is set up upon the earth. Wherefore, may the kingdom of God go forth, that the kingdom of heaven may come, that thou, O God, mayest be glorified in heaven, so on earth, that thine enemies may be subdued, for thine is the honor, the power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. The culmination of this dispensation in the sequence of the Lord's time will see the glorious coming of the Son of Man. The third condition which I often ponder concerns the day of the Gentile. Which day is now, wherein the gospel is being taken to the Gentile nations of the earth, that they may, if obedient to the call, come in and be numbered with the house of Israel? The Lord, in a revelation to Joseph Smith, related this period to the nearness of his second coming, and I quote, And when the times of the Gentiles has come in, a light shall break forth among them that sit in darkness, and it shall be the fullness of my gospel. But there will be many among them who will not receive it. Of these the revelation continues, but they receive it not, for they perceive not the light, and they turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. 
But as to the identification of the time that the gospel is taken to the Gentiles, I quote from the same revelation. And when the light shall begin to break forth, it shall be with them like unto a parable which I will show you. Ye look and behold the fig trees, and ye see them with your eyes, and ye say when they begin to shoot forth, and their leaves are yet tender, that the summer is now nigh at hand. Even so it shall be in that day when they shall see all these things, then shall they know that the hour is nigh. The turbulent and awesome conditions of the last days of mortal existence, some of which we now observe, have been spoken of by many of the prophets. The Lord's remarks about these days are most direct, which he gave when asked by his disciples these words, Tell us when shall these things be, which thou hast said concerning the destruction of the temple and the Jews, and what is the sign of thy second coming and of the end of the world. He gave them specific answers as to what would happen to the Jews, and then gave attention to the conditions of the last days. Here are his words spoken in part, and I quote, And they shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Behold, I speak for mine elect's sake, for nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. And again, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But, that, but he that shall not be overcome, the same shall be saved. And again, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come, or the destruction of the wicked. End of quote. By way of assurance and hope to build strength in the hearts of the saints, the Lord has given this counsel by revelation with which I close my remarks, and I quote, I say unto you, Be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. And again I say unto you, that the enemy in the secret chambers seeketh your lives. Ye hear of wars in far countries, and you say that there will soon be a great war in far countries. But ye know not the hearts of men in your own land. I tell you these things because of your prayers. Wherefore, treasure up wisdom in your bosoms, lest the wickedness of men reveal these things unto you by their wickedness, in a manner which shall speak in your ears with a voice louder than that which shall shake the earth. But if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. Ye shall not fear. Or as the Lord said upon another occasion, the gathering and the faithfulness of the saints is for a refuge against the awesome conditions which we must face. The Lord has given to us 
the pattern in all things, that we may not be deceived, for Satan is abroad in the land, and he goeth forth deceiving the nations. I know, my brothers and sisters, that God lives. I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that the message of the Restoration is true. And if we are faithful, we need not fear that which must come about. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, as I stand before you here today, I seek an interest in your faith and prayers as I deliver the things that I have in my heart. Marriage in the temple for time and eternity should be the goal of every good Latter-day Saint. For marriage is ordained of God. Marriage is a commandment. Marriage was given by divine edict. The Lord has said, And again, verily I say unto you, that whoso forbiddeth to marry is not ordained of God, for marriage is ordained of God unto man. Therefore, it is lawful that man should have one wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, and all this that the earth might answer the ends of its creation, and that it might be filled with the measure of man according to his creation before the world was made. Marriage is a sacred relationship entered into primarily for the rearing of a family in the fulfillment of the commandments of the Lord. Marriage with children and the beautiful family relationship which can come of it is the fulfillment of life. If things are as they should be, we would see a mother and a father in a home having been married in the temple for time and eternity, the father honoring his priesthood, presiding in the home in righteousness, father and mother living, loving each other and their children, children loving and respecting each other and their mother and father, all actively engaged in their church responsibilities. The Lord intended that marriage performed for eternity in the temple should endure forever. This was his plan. President Joseph Fielding Smith has said, Marriage is understood by Latter-day Saints is a covenant ordained to be everlasting. It is the foundation for which eternal exaltation, uh, for a, uh, it is a foundation for e eternal exaltation, for without it there could be no eternal progress in the kingdom of God. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. It is evident from the scriptures that marriage performed in the Lord's way should not be dissolved. It is sad indeed to see how lightly some take their marriage vows. There is great concern among the brethren as to the increasing number of divorces in the Church today. Even though the divorce rate among members of the Church is considerably less than the national rate, and the rate of divorces among those married in the temple is less than those married civilly, yet the rate is alarmingly high. Divorce is usually the result of one or more or one or both not living the gospel. I suppose this is the same reason divorce was finally permitted in the time of Moses, as recorded in the, by the Savior. Uh, he answered the Pharisees when he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, 
suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And so it is today. Members of the Church do not abide the law of the gospel in its fullness, and as in the day of Moses, it is permitted when deemed necessary, although it was never intended to be. If, marriage, if, if in marriage both parties would make gospel standards and principles the basis of their marriages, few problems would arise they couldn't handle. When one or the other or both begins to compromise gospel standards, problems follow. Marriage, as I have said, is a sacred relationship, and good members of the Church should enter into it uh, primarily for the rearing of families. However, other important desires and plans in marriage should also be well understood by both parties as well. President McKay said, in reference to the seriousness with which we enter into the marriage contract, to look upon marriage as a mere contract that may be entered into at pleasure in response to romantic whims or selfish purposes and severed at the first difficulty that may arise uh, is an evil meriting severe condemnation, especially in cases where children are made to suffer because of such separations. Possibly to list some of the most common causes for which civil divorces are sought might be helpful, helpful to us in avoiding some of these problems. Incompatibility, adultery, money matters, physical abuse, dishonesty, not living the gospel, infidelity, not honoring the priesthood, desertion, constant bickering, apathy, drunkenness, uncontrolled temper. Incompatibility has come to be such a common word. It seems to be that the that justification for so, so many of our problems. I'm sure there are many occasions where it is likely justified. But what is incompatibility? Doesn't it indicate selfishness? Are we truly unselfish? Do we love our neighbors as ourselves, as, as we are not incompatible, as we are not compatible? Have we made every effort to compromise our likes and our dislikes with that of our spouse? If we are truly living the gospel, there would be much less incompatibility. President McKay has said further in reference to incompatibility, for a couple who have basked in the sunshine of each other's love to stand by daily and see the clouds of misunderstanding and discord obscure the love light in their eyes uh, is a tragedy indeed. The darkness that follows, the love sparkle in each other's eyes is obscured. To restore, its, uh, fruit, uh, to restore it, fruitless attempts are made to say the right words and to do the right thing, but the words and acts are misinterpreted and angry retorts open the wounds and the hearts once united become torn wider and wider asunder. When this heartbreaking state is reached, a separation is sought." End quote. I have been shocked in learning the extent to which men are physically abusive to women. In the October conference, President McKay again said something in reference to this. I can't imagine a man's being cruel to a woman. I can't imagine her conducting herself as to merit such treatment. Perhaps there are women in the world who exasperate their husbands, but no man is justified in resorting to physical force or in exploding his feelings in profanity. There are men undoubtedly in the world who are thus beastly, but no man who holds the priesthood of God 
should so debase himself, end quote. The matter of disinterest, lack of voluntary expression, lack of affection are also common causes in the breakdown of marriage. President Harold B. Lee recently said to a group of priesthood leaders this, I say unto you, brethren, the most dangerous thing that can happen between you and your wife or between me and my wife is apathy. For them to feel that we are not interested in their affairs, that we are not expressing our love and showing our affection in countless ways. Women, to be happy, have to be loved, and so do men. End quote. To take lightly the law of chastity or to violate the moral teachings of the Savior is a sober matter. It seems incredible that priesthood holders and women who have been given uh, and considered worthy of temple recommends to be married in the temple uh, are so often guilty of adultery, infidelity, or other sex sins. In this day when so many women are working out of the home, when men work together with women, uh, many homes are broken up. Things started in a very innocent way but ended in a very sad way. President McKay said of this, uh, when a man who has entered into the, to a sacred covenant in the house of the Lord to remain true to his marriage vows is a traitor to that covenant. If he separates himself from his wife and family just because he has permitted himself to become infatuated with a pretty face and the calmly form of some young girl, who flattered him with a smile. And even though a loose interpretation of the law of the land would grant such a man a bill of divorcement, I think he is unworthy of a recommend to have his second marriage performed in the temple." End quote. No matter what the reason for divorce, those usually hurt most are the children. Too often, children are robbed of the basic needs uh, to prepare them for life. Someone has said that there are three fundamental things to, of, uh, to which every child is entitled, a respected name, a sense of security, and third, opportunity for development. The possibility of either of these is greatly lessened in divorce. As Sister Cullimore and I went uh, to the temple, we were called into the office of President George H. Brimhall, who at the time was the President Emeritus at the Brigham Young University, and he gave us some direction that we've appreciated through the years. He said, the four fountains that will keep your Garden of Eden from becoming a desert are these. Constant confidence, constant counsel, constant courtship, and constant compromise. Important to any marriage is complete confidence. Trust in all things. The confidence born of a true love, never doubting, never questioning the integrity of each other. Someone has said, society is built upon trust and trust upon confidence in one another's integrity. To counsel with each other and make decisions together is so important to a happy marriage. Counsel, which includes the whole family, might well build great strength and a sound relationship. Counseling with each other in all that is done will strengthen the bonds of matrimony. I suppose there is no surer need in marriage than constant compromise. It is through compromise that we come closer and closer to each other as we acknowledge our own faults and recognize the virtues in others and make the adjustments we strengthen our marriage 
Henry Watterson has said this, I would compromise war, I would compromise glory, I would compromise everything at the point where hate comes in, where misery comes in, where love ceases to be love, and life begins its descent into the valley of the shadow of death. But I would not compromise truth. I would not compromise right. Constant courtship. It has been said the seeds of a happy married life are sown in youth. Happiness does not begin at the altar. It begins during the period of youth and courtship." Neither should courtship end at the altar. How important it is to constantly be conscious of our marriage and work at it every day we live, keeping alive our courtship by kind acts, thoughtfulness and and consideration always. Brother Archibald F. Bennett, in his writing on family relationship, expressed this beautifully. Too many couples have come to the altar of marriage looking upon the marriage ceremony as the end of courtship instead of the beginning of an eternal courtship. Let us not forget that during the burdens of home life that tender words of appreciation, courteous acts, are even more appreciated than during those sweet days and months of courtship. It is after the ceremony and during the trials that that daily arise in the home that a word of thank you or pardon me if you please, will contribute to the love which brought you to the altar. The wedding ring gives no man the right to be cruel or inconsiderate, and no woman the right to be slovenly, cross, or disagreeable. May we keep sacred our vows in the temple and live that we might enjoy the eternal blessings of an of a eternal marriage. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.